welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, hope you're having a good one this week. So my guest is Alex Hammaker, and he's the Head of Corporate Finance at Oxford Sciences Innovation. He's a former physician, so he's a med student and a junior doctor in the Oxford Training Deanery before transitioning to investment banking where he had over 12 years of experience in healthcare and other investment banking sectors, including equity, debt capital raisings, mergers and acquisitions, as well as licensing transactions. He gained that in UBS and Lazard Asset Management. So Alex holds a BA in Psychological Sciences, a BMBCH from Oxford University. And for those of you that don't know, Oxford Sciences Innovation is the world's largest university partner adventure firm. And they work with the University of Oxford to build companies that create fundamental technologies which are science-based businesses capable of tackling the planet's toughest problems and you're going to hear about some of those incredible companies on this episode so hope you enjoy this one with Alex. All right so Alex welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this afternoon mate? Good thank you. Pleasure pleasure to be here. Oh you're very welcome. Um, where else are you speaking to us from today Alex? So I am speaking to you from the uh, centre of UK tech just outside of Old Street in London. Are you back in the office now? We are not yet back in the office. Um, we're having to take a very cautious line uh, on this, of course, um, yeah. given the number of companies that we are invested in that are so closely involved in the um, global fight against COVID. Uh, of course, of course. And we will definitely come on to that stuff, mate. But first of all, it'd be great for our listeners if you could tell us a bit of your story, my friend. Sure. So um, I'm a... Former doctor, just just like you, um, that's moved into the commercial world um, <clears throat> where I've actually been for the last 15 years or so. Um, so I was originally part of the foundation uh, training program. I, my year at medical school was the very first guinea pig year that got shoved out there. Um, and unsurprisingly, we, we took a few hits and a few teething problems um, along the way. Oh, so you were the, f- the first F1? We were the first F1. In fact, they didn't even call us F1s. They just called us house officers and wow. SHOs. Oh, so they still called you, I suppose, yeah. It takes a while for those things to embed, doesn't it? <laughs> it takes a very long time for those things to embed at, at the top of hospital organizations. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, you know that that gave me the required push to to look beyond medicine and what else I I could be doing uh, with with my set of skills. Um, was, it, was it really that experience of F one that that or well, I suppose of house officer slash F one slash whatever chaos they were doing reorganising healthcare was that was that actually what what made you decide to look elsewhere? Well, look, don't don't get me wrong. Um, it, it's uh, you know, every uh, training system course needs updates as they go along, and the UK medical training system hadn't had many um, at that particular particular yeah. level. So it, it was overdue an update, um, and updates always have teething problems. Um, you know, we, we should all accept that as as part of that cost of change, right? But um, this one, I think, probably had more more than its fair share, and that then came on top of a bit of a nagging thoughts at the back of my mind that I, I wanted to, to do something more and um, that could have a, a broader impact yeah, upon the world. You know, I'd, I'd sat and done the calculations of, you know, I could see somewhere between you know, 20 to 50 patients per, per day in, in A&E and you, you could do that roughly six days of the week and you can do that roughly 50 weeks of the year. That's, mm. that's, that's your span of impact. Um, and I, I realized that uh, there was bigger ways to be making an impact upon the world, yeah. which is what led me to look outside of, of medicine. Um, of course, there's many other avenues that you could explore within medicine that could lead you to, to having that greater in- span of impact. But um, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to a medical school that was closely integrated to its university. And so I had a lot of um, friends from university time that had gone off into management consultancy which is always the the classic place that former doctors go to um as well as uh, investment banking yeah and so you know, i sat and had a lot of conversations with them 
about what what their jobs involved um, and realized very quickly that actually I would prefer to go into investment banking instead of um, management consultancy mm. because it was just a little little bit more concrete than um, producing the the hundred PowerPoint slide deck um, <laughs> and, and, and slowly slowly crucifying your your management team who's also your client using that hundred point that hundred slide deck. I just want I just want to jump in a sec because do you know who else I spoke to that had the did the exact same calculation as you and thought about it that way was um do you know Andrew Elder at Albion. Yes. He's deputy managing director there. Yeah, yeah. So he, when I spoke to him actually for this podcast, um, he said he did exactly the same thing. So he was in neurosurgery and basically said he just did the same equation, which was actually how much impact can I have here? And, and, and wanted to push himself to do more, which is like, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's a really kind of like data driven way of, I suppose, justifying what you're feeling. Cause I've been through that too, man, of like, you know, you want to be, you want to be doing other stuff. You want to be for your own personal perspective, it doesn't have to be all external about impact. Like I remember I wanted to like learn about business. I wanted to do all that stuff and I ended up trying to do it even within medicine. But then I had the same thought, which is being impact driven. You kind of get frustrated with how much you can actually do. Um, and I think I just wasn't getting the same buzz from from the one to one that other people were doing. And I, you know, I always caveat this and say that I, I wish I did. You know, I wish I, I wish I was getting the joy from medicine that other people were getting. And I think when it was coming to the end of that stuff, that's that's kind of what I felt. I was looking around, just like, damn, like I'm just not getting the same joy as these other people. And I just felt so bad that I was like, I've got to try and scratch these other itches, right? I mean, I don't know if that's similar to your experience. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, Medicine, I think, very firmly remains a vocation, um, and you you really have to be doing it for for the love of the the doctor patient um, interaction. Um, and don't get me wrong, I I got such a buzz out of just the the, the sheer randomness generated that that <laughs> a and E is. Um, you love you love a bit of chaos, though. I think <laughs> from what I've learned about you over the years, <laughs> chaos chaos is good. Good <laughs> things come come out of chaos because that's that's what forces people to to think outside of the box and and, and think differently. And you know, the last the last six months um, of this year have been a great example of that, right? Yeah. It, it, even from simple things like um, people's working practices, um, all the way to how you run clinical trials um this this whole episode has caused all of us to to rethink how how we approach that and so true so so many of those changes were happening already anyway but this has just really accelerated and yeah. really catalyzed all of that yeah um but um yeah it's <laughs> it interesting what you were saying about other people having had the um the same calculation. There was there was me thinking I was having an original thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone but, literally probably round the corner from you, like right right now. <laughs> yeah. um, in but, a pretty much similar uh, field to where you are right now. <laughs> totally. Uh, but, oh. but 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 actually, how, how unoriginal my thought was was illustrated to me when when I took up my my first job. Um, post post medicine which was at UBS mm. um, and at the time and in the healthcare team that UBS had in London there was um, one graduate job going per, per year and um, I turned up thinking well I'm, I'm a former doctor so I'm going to go into the healthcare team naturally yeah. um, and I turned up and there was somebody already sat in that particular seat. Yeah. Uh, and there was a colorectal surgeon who was a registrar who had <laughs> exactly the same thought, thought process as me, but he just managed to have it six months earlier. Uh. Um, and so he, he'd already joined the firm and he was already part of the team, but he counted as being in, in my graduate intake. Wow. Uh, at, at UBS. So they said to me, well, you probably should go to the healthcare team, but you can't because there's someone sat in your seat already. Um, so off you go and join um, another team, which ended up being uh, mergers and acquisitions. Wow. So I've got a question here, mate, which is as a clinician that then moved into investment banking, firstly, 
that's an interesting career move, just full stop. I mean, okay, fine. It's not the first time anybody's done it, but it's still relatively rare. So my first question is, how difficult was that to do in terms of the process to leave medicine to go and do that? And then secondly, how difficult was it to acclimatize? I mean, I don't know if you'd done many or any jobs before medicine, certainly probably not any office jobs or anything like that. And what was that acclimatization process like so those are the, those are my two questions on on, on this stuff yeah yeah the, that that change um is is absolutely fascinating right because you completely have to recalibrate about how you think about the world um and i i remember to this day so they when you get there um as a graduate with an investment bank the first thing they do particularly in europe is send you off on a two-month training course okay. um, because especially in Europe the graduates that they take in you know they've studied humanities and geography and you know other really useful degrees that train sure. you well for your career in investment banking um, and uh, so I turned up on this, this training course and the um, the teacher went around at the beginning of the course um, asking people what their experience was of Excel and um, you know, you you'll probably have done this as well. The only time I'd used Excel previously, at uh, when I was a house officer or, or an F one, <laughs> was was to make really useful tables for my patient lists. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I had absolutely zero appreciation of the fact that you could use it, you know, to add up and subtract and divide <laughs> and all these other really funny I mean, things. That, that is a pretty basic function of Excel. I mean, I did know that. <laughs> um, I didn't know I'm, much I'm, about any models or anything, but I knew you could add up. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, well, you 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 were sweet to me, and I remember saying to the teacher, "Yeah, I know that the icon is green." Amazing, and they, and they went, "Ha ha, very funny." I went, I, "I'm not actually kidding." Oh god, <laughs> I'm, I just I just want to set your expectations here <laughs> as to the the chasm that I'm going to have to try and bridge in the next two months. How did you get the job? Yes. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, made even better by the fact <laughs> I remember being in the interview and the, um, the interviewer was a managing director at UBS. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a pretty we, big deal. He, yeah, he was, he, he was a senior guy and we were going for a case study of, of this company. Um, and the, you know, the briefing materials were, were written pretty broadly for people who studied geography or even indeed medicine. Sure. And um, the guy asked me a question and he used the acronym EBITDA. Yeah. And I had to say to him, I'm really sorry, but I don't actually know what EBITDA means. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> and, and I remember the guy pausing uh, and looking back at my CV and um, he looked up and went, right, you are. Let's, let's talk about something else. <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, I, I make all of these admissions to, to, to set the stage as to what my level of financial knowledge had been. Yeah. But um, I think what, what managed to, to get me the job is, is the fact that, you know, you, you think within medicine, you're learning about um, symptoms and signs and diagnosis and treatment. But, but actually what you're doing alongside that is developing the most fantastic toolkit of soft skills um, mm. in terms of you know, managing, uh, frankly, frightened people who are yeah. going through um, an experience that they have never done so before in their lives with um, some pretty significant impact on their lives, upon their families. Um, and you're having to... Um, in order to, to, to help them, you're having to corral and utilize a whole team of people, right? That sit within the yeah. hospital, that sit within the community care setting. And um, those, those are skills, soft skills that are actually uh, very similar to the skills that you need in a, in a merger or in an acquisition. You've got a management team that's probably only done this at best once before in their working lives. Um, and if it goes well, uh, it means that the company is supercharged and their careers are supercharged. Or if it goes wrong, um, then it could mean the end of their particular careers. Wow. So there's there's a bit of a similarity between between those two. It's <laughs> it's an amazing background in the sense that, as you say, you didn't have 
any real financial knowledge and <laughs> going into a bank not knowing EBITDA is is incredible that you then managed to turn that around to then to then get the job, I suppose. But I think what you're saying is, I mean, the the lesson here that I suppose I'd like to pull out, and actually I'll double down on and give you my example, but yeah. the amount of transferable skills that clinicians have that they might not know about is unbelievable to me. Like it is huge. Yeah. The amount of the amount of times that people say to me, "Oh, what a waste! Like you did medicine and you were a doctor, and now now you're doing this and either." And it was like, I, I I see where you're coming from, but everything that I learned, if you take away the fact it was in medicine, I still went through all those lessons on the you know on on the shop floor of a okay, an NHS organization, but call it a company where you're literally putting out fires every day, where you're dealing with stress, you're dealing yeah. with anxiety, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with communicators. And actually, do you know what? I, I still, to, to this day, I don't know anybody better at disseminating lots of complex information and presenting it very succinctly as clinicians. And actually, when you and I spoke last, you did some introductions straight afterwards and you managed to sum up my bio and things that I do and and the value to the other person in less than a sentence I noticed. And I actually thought at the time, I was like, and I don't just mean doctors here, by the way, I mean anybody that's worked on the ground floor of healthcare that needs to sum up patients and tell them to people that like, I, I still believe that clinicians are so, so, so good at that. And I don't know anybody better <laughs> that I actually want to get communicated to, if you know what I mean, or from, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, it's crazy yeah. how good those skills are. Well, it's, that's, that's very kind of you to say so, but you know, frankly, you, you, you've managed to achieve some really significant milestones and you know, what's so far been a, you know, a fairly short career for, for, for both you and, and me, right? Yeah. But it's not over yet, right? <laughs> think, yeah. If we get yeah, this right, got, we're, we're got, going to be working until we're 70. Uh, it's funny. Like Jess, my partner said to me the other day, she's she just like, I don't actually see the day that you retire. You'll just like do something slightly different. And I kind of believe her. Like, I don't, I don't know why, why I would just stop doing everything. It's, it's bizarre because I suppose that's the game that we're in, right? Which is trying to, trying to now iterate our lives and our jobs and, and our vocations and everything that surrounds that. And just trying to hit the moving target, which is happiness. And I know that I I was saying the other day, actually, I was speaking on a podcast the other day where I was talking to somebody who said, like, you know, how did you, how did you get your career to where it is and 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 stuff? And I just had to say, well, there's there's never a grand plan, never was a grand plan. It's just mm. the case of every year. And medicine does teach you that, right? To sort of audit your life every year because because you move hospital or you move job or you go up a year in med school. It's you sort of operate on these yearly cycles. And I think I just kind of audit where I am every year, and I just kind of think, well, what can I take out that I don't like, and what can I put in that I do like, and and Every year is just a bit more of a of a step towards that that as I say that moving target that is contentment or happiness, whatever you want to call it, or indeed the perfect career, which definitely does not exist. <laughs> but um, yeah, every year I feel like I'm edging yeah. slightly closer towards it, but I think the target's moving ever so slightly far further away. So I think I think I'm in a bit of limbo, but it's good limbo because at least I feel like it's progress. I don't know about you. Yeah, do you know, I I think it's um it's a rare person indeed. That that has a, a you know a five or or a seven year or even a fifteen year plan for their career. I know I know one or two people, um, and and they're just apps absolute freaks in a good way. <laughs> um, so but, driven, uh, so I, like oh, self aware. So, yeah, so driven, so self aware, so so strategic um, in what they do and where they invest their time. It, Interesting. It's, it's absolutely awe inspiring to see them at work. Yeah, um, and which is a lot of clinicians actually to go full circle here. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, but I've I think that's for clinicians, right? There are some very predefined tram lines that that you travel down to to get to um, a, a particular endpoint. Um, at least it, if you're taking some of the more kind of vanilla yeah. ultimate objectives within sure. medicine. Um, and um, I, I remember when I was first making that that transition, and this is going to be sorry, completely di divergent point. I remember when I was first making the um, transition from medicine into into the business world. I remember somebody observing to me that um, clinicians tend to do either very well or very badly when they make that 
transition. Um, and the ones that tend to do badly are the ones that can't um, cope with the uncertainty mm. that actually exists in in the real world, which mm. seems like a really strange thing to say because you know, medicine is is very real. But um, I think what they meant is that basically is it's not the commercial world is not a, a case of making a diagnosis and then depending upon your diagnosis, there's a treatment protocol that you just follow, right? And that, mm-hmm. that protocol already exists. Um, in the commercial world, everything has its own particular flavor and its own particular shade of grain. You need to consistently adapt and, and adjust to that. Um, and frankly, the, the world changes pretty quickly as well. It's not a set and forget style sort of diagnosis. It's a good point, man, because I, I struggled. I struggled with the lack of structure. And actually, like I said before, you know, that yearly, that yearly thing of like, you know, hit your objectives, get your ARCP and then move on. I didn't have that structure either. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay. So I've got to do all this weird stuff, like cold emailing people and stuff that you've never really had to do before. And yeah, it was weird. It was weird to me sort of. And, And also the fact it's not necessarily a meritocracy either. I mean, it kind of is. But also it's kind of a bit unfair as well. There's all these like unfair advantages that seem to like crop up and you're like, ah, oh, this is how the yeah. world works. Because in medicine, you know, the, it's, it's, it's pretty broad in the sense that who does medicine, I know, I know there's like a, a bias towards private school and things like that. But like once you, once you are in there, it's pretty flat in terms of who's going to get ahead and all those different things. And everyone's got kind of equal opportunity, but God, in the real world, it was, it was so, it was so different. And yeah, I, I, I probably didn't cope that well actually at the beginning. And I remember my, my first sort of job after, after leaving was, um, well, I worked at health education England for a bit, which was fine. I had loads of structure there. It was, you know, arms and body department of health and you're always going to be structured. But then when I was at the, the first accelerator, digital health London, I remember in the interview, I was like, yeah, but what actually is the job? Like what, what do I actually have to do every day? And they were like, ah, oh, like, you know, it could be loads of stuff. You could be speaking to a startup or an investor, or you might be helping them with a bit of marketing, like all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, but what, what, what actually is that? What am I going to be measured on? Like, what's the, what's yeah. the stuff? <laughs> I like really struggled with like, tell me what I'm actually doing. Which are the Oskies? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need to demonstrate at the end of the year. Yeah. Where's, where's, my 24 point checklist that I'm, get, that I'm going to tick off and I'm going to get a gold star and someone's going to tell me I'm great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly right. But, but in, in a way, and I think this, this goes to the doctors that managed to do well um, out of that. If you can embrace that kind of chaos, if you can um, enjoy that really free, Reform and, and frankly, the, the ability to write your own job description, which, which is what, what it sounds like for you. You can have some, some really fantastic, fantastic fun. And, and once you're having fun, then people always tend to do well in their jobs because um, they, they really become passionate and they really become engaged as to what, what they're doing. I love that mentality, man, turning the chaos into, um, into fun and opportunity. Like it's so true. And that is exactly what I ended up doing at that accelerator and sort of carving my own path for that role because there literally wasn't one. It was just like, well, here's kind of what we're aiming for. So just try and do that. And, and once I figured out that was, that was kind of the way they were taking the, the approach they were taking in terms of you're free to kind of do what you want. Just stop asking questions. I was like, okay, fine. (laughs) Great. I'll go and do, I'll go and do that then. And then all of a sudden it's actually, as you say, quite enjoyable, but, um, listen, man, I want to talk, I want to talk about what you do now because, well, where are we in the story? So you did investment banking and you were at UBS. How long were you at UBS for before you moved on? Yeah. So I was at UBS for gosh, um, probably eight or nine years. Um, I ended up working in, um, power utilities and, and infrastructure for wow. five, five or six of those years. Of course, that, that's, a, that's a really natural place for a former doctor <laughs> to, to, to end up. But what I was basically doing was, was just following the money. Um, yeah. <clears throat> because uh, so I joined Investment Bank in 2007. And um, 2008, the, the stress in the financial system had really started to transmit mm. out into the wider economy and it became the financial crisis um, and, and everything shut down. Um, there, was, there was nothing happening with mergers and acquisitions. I, I was actually working with a team from Lehman Brothers the, the weekend that, that bank went down and it, 
was awful seeing the, the stress on the faces of, of that team. You know, their phones would stop working, their emails would stop working for a couple of hours, would then come back on again, would then stop working again for a couple of hours. It was it was awful. Oh my god. Um but um because there was nothing happening with mergers and acquisitions, my boss at the time said to me, well, you should go and join power utilities and infrastructure. There's always something happening there. Um, and as it was, that was absolutely fantastic advice um, because that became one of the, the hottest sector um, within um, financial services and, and private capital investments. It was just at the time of the rise of the, the infrastructure funds. So these were the Canadian pension funds. Um, but also the, the Middle Eastern and Chinese sovereign wealth funds. Um, and they were going around Europe buying up all of the uh, real infrastructure assets that were being sold by the various European governments um, as a result of their bailout packages. Wow. So, yeah, I did that in Portugal, did that in Spain, Italy, and then, of course, there's a lot of movement in the UK, but not quite from, from the same angle as those particular parties. Um, but that was great fun. But you know, after a while, we'd, we'd sold all of the, the ports and airports and toll roads and um, electricity networks that, that there were, uh, mostly to the Chinese. Um, and again, my boss at the time said to me, well, that's, that's probably it in Europe, but um, you should go to Australia because the, the whole process is about to repeat over there. So I moved wow. to Australia 12,000 miles away to, to go and um, do a very similar role at, at there and, and actually be, ended up being sat across the table from the very same Chinese sovereign wealth funds that had been buying the same assets within Europe. Um, oh and, it, and it wasn't just the same companies, it was actually the same people. as the well. Same individuals. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was, that took me for eight years. So I, I then um, worked at Lazard in Australia for um, a year or so. Um, and I was still doing very much the same thing, power utilities and infrastructure. But there's actually some pretty interesting IP coming out of some of the Australian universities um, in, in the biotech space. And so I'd started working um, with the Lazard Healthcare team, who were based primarily in New York, San Francisco and, and London, um, but for a couple of Australian companies. Um, and they phoned me up after a while and said, you're a former medical doctor who's a Brit who's living in Australia covering utilities and infrastructure and natural resource companies. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> come back to London, come and join the healthcare team properly um, and we will have a great time. So that's what I eventually then did. So I did that for two, three years on a, on a you know, sector-focused healthcare, life science-focused basis within London, um, had an absolutely fantastic time with that, but um, <clears throat> eventually decided that what I really needed to do was go and do something that's, that's a little bit more long-term than investment banking. And, and good, going back to what we were talking about previously, about you, know, you, you need to find something that, that allows you to find, find your particular passion and, and your particular enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, I, I began to realize that I didn't want to do investment banking uh, long term and so I needed to, to, to find that alternative, um, that alternative role, um, which in many ways was very belated because I also remember the, um, the trainer on the uh, UBS graduate training course that we were talking about previously mm. at the end of the course saying to me, um, you'll, you'll be just fine with in, in investment banking but uh, that I was probably going to get bored within a couple of years. Interesting. Um, and <laughs> just to demonstrate how, how fast a learner I am, it took me 12 years to fully, <laughs> fully appreciate what, 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 what they meant. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, so yeah, after, after 12 years, I, I had that light bulb moment. Um, and I'd, I'd always known the team at Oxford Sciences Innovation um, even before they'd set up um, Oxford Sciences Innovation. So I was always aware of what they oh, were trying okay. to achieve within Oxford. And we'd, we'd always had a very slow running conversation about 
trying to find something to to do together. Yeah. And it's it just happened that the stars aligned on my side. I was I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. Um and um OSI was just maturing to the point where I could actually add some value to to what they were trying to achieve. That's amazing, man. And also a really good advocate for not burning any bridges and staying in long conversations with people about how you might work together in future. And I know for a fact, you know, when I was in my sort of heavy networking phase, when I just left and for, for many years, in fact, you know, always thinking at the, at the back of my mind, like, is that a company I want to work for? Is that, is, is there something I want to do with this person? And, you know, similar to you and I, like, you know, we were introduced by a mutual friend and we've just been catching up for like a few years now about different things in the space. We we've always done different stuff, but we grab a beer every now and again and just have a chat. And, and at some point the stars might align to do something, but <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. it's, it's like you ping me like, Oh, you still, you guys are still running the accelerator. Cause someone mentioned it. like it's, you, you never yeah. know like how, how these things are going to align in future. But I completely agree that this is such a good move for people when they're thinking about, um, you know, how they might make the next move in their career or even, you know, how do you just, how do you just increase your options of where you are right now? And it's just stay involved in those conversations with people and, and, and don't, don't burn any bridges ever. Like definitely. Yeah. Uh, totally. Totally. Do you know what? That's, that's, that's something that I, I always struggle with a little bit um, in terms of, you know, those, those um, random introductory meetings or, or those random coffees. Yeah. Um, because I, I have so many people that say to me, oh, you, you should go to every meeting with, with an agenda and you should go to every meeting with a series of things that you, you want to get out of that meeting. Yeah. And I, I get what they're talking about, but actually sometimes you just need to turn up and, and just come, come at it with, with a totally open mind and just have the most wide-ranging, um, and it doesn't even need to be exploratory discussion, right? It yeah. just needs to be making a connection discussion. And yeah, to your point, who, who knows where that may lead a couple of years down, down the line. Totally agree, man. And I remember having this conversation with someone quite recently. I think it was on this podcast and I think it was not long ago, but it was about networking and it was about how to network. And and I think that's what networking actually is. I think I don't think it is about trying to extract value from other people every time. I think part of good networking, at least for me and the way I've done it, is sort of unashamedly just putting out as much value as possible, catching up with people and just offering yourself for some help just to see what can happen. And yeah. I think that is what, if, you, if you're putting those sort of vibes out, there's, you've got favors knocking around in the system. You've got goodwill knocking around in the system. And I think you are just up there in people's minds when people think about, oh, who can I introduce this person to? Like, oh, who's nice in the space that I can get this information for? Like, I, I think that just it gives you so many, so many better vibes, like definitely. But I don't want to talk about it too much because I want to give some time to, to OSI and everything that you guys are doing there. Yeah. So for people that are listening that might not know what Oxford Sciences Innovations is, tell us all about it. So Oxford Sciences Innovation is the uh, venture firm that's partnered with Oxford University. We, we have a long-term partnership with them. Um, and the idea is, is that we will work with the university and, and its researchers to identify commercially relevant IP and then spin that out into a company so that we give that IP the best possible chance of um, reaching it to a commercial success. So we operate across four different sectors, um, life sciences, and we'll, we'll come on back, back to that particular sector in, in a second, um, digital health or what we call health tech software and technology, which is, of course, uh, primarily focused on AI, machine learning, um, but also quantum computing. And then um, the fourth sector is a sector called deep tech, which I like to describe as industrial goods for the modern world. So this is companies that are pursuing nuclear fusion, um, 3D printing of metals, um, alloy design, um, just, just an to name a few there. I knew all um, your working power tools had come back in handy, mate. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I've just pointed out that, that life sciences, um, 
is for me quite an entertaining label because actually what life sciences um, covers is everything from the really hardcore biotech companies all the way to medical device card companies and, and life science tools um, which of course um, in many parts of the um, financial services and, and investing world um, counts as entirely separate and distinct sectors. Yeah. You've also started into the gray area of health tech in there when you talk about medical devices as well. So goodness knows where that definition starts and finishes. Um, but I mean, so in terms of the stuff that you guys invest in, I mean, I can see why you might have moved there. Obviously, Oxford University being one of, if not the most famous university in the world and all the research going on there, you guys are just casually sitting on the sidelines looking at all this incredible stuff like nuclear fusion and the next greatest things in, in 3D printing of metals and health and, and biotech. And you just get to come in and, and spin these things out into companies and turn ideas into reality. I mean, I can see why you've kept these guys in the back burner, mate, and just caught up with them for, for a role because, I mean, on a daily basis, you must have like one eye into the future, right? Actually, and this, this is a really exciting thing about what we're trying to achieve at our site, at least to me. <laughs> which is everything that we invest into is such deep fundamental technologies yeah. um, that if they work, they really have the ability to, to change the world. Yeah. Someone said to me once that investors pick the world we live in next. And yeah, that, that hasn't felt more true than in this conversation, actually, that the, the sorts of things that you talked about there and that you must be seeing. Yeah. And, and, and for us, the really fun thing is, is that um, you know, we're, we're trying to crystal ball gaze to your point, five to seven or even 10 years into the future yeah. to, to try and predict what, what is going to be a, a success. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll probably need somewhere between 20 to 50 million to find out as well. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. So, you know, it, it's, it's trying to take some, some really long-term views and then put some really hard conviction behind it mm. once once we have taken those views, to uh, <laughs> so the to the tune of twenty to fifty million is uh, is pretty hardcore backing as well. Like that is uh, that's some serious serious infrastructure that you can build with that stuff. Yeah, and that's that's just um, OSI stake that we're going to be putting in, in, into our companies. So we think that between now and the end of twenty twenty five, we will probably need to be investing just shy of a billion pounds of. Our, our equity capital into our companies. And, mm. and this is both companies that currently exist within our portfolio and new ones that we're going to be spinning out. Yeah. Um, but alongside that, we'll probably need to pull in about another 3 billion sterling of capital at the same time. So these, these are big numbers. Yeah. But I think just underscores the um, ambition that, that OSI has as to where yeah. we would like to be taking our companies. And also VCs need to be raising money too. It's, uh, yes, that, yep. It's, uh, people often think that if you're a small startup, you just think, oh, these VCs just got loads of money. They need to be raising that money too. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a consistent game and what needs to be a consistent game anyway. But listen, man, so in terms of health tech, Obviously, the listeners of this podcast are going to be really interested to know with what you've just said there, you know, the, the view that you guys have of what the next five, seven, 10 years looks like in, in healthcare, health tech, life sciences, and all that sort of stuff. What can you tell us about the view of the future that you guys have got, either with companies that you're investing in now or, that want, or sectors or technologies that you might be looking at in future? Yeah, um, because we're investors, we we like to try try and forecast where we think the world is, is <laughs> going to be. <laughs> and, and the one thing that you can guarantee about any forecast is that the forecast is going to be wrong. Um, but it's like not trying to, to predict tr- the weather like three years in advance, yeah. like the amount of variables. <laughs> like, exactly. Did you put exactly. a pandemic in for 2020? Did you factor that in? <laughs> oh, there's, there's a story within that one. It's just, just, <laughs> just, just by itself. But, but actually, what, what, so we, you know, we, we tried to take a view three, four years ago as to where we thought digital health was going to be just in mm. terms of penetration. And um, even at the beginning of this year, um, our, our forecasts were starting to look pretty wrong. Um, and then COVID hit. And I think that at least doubled, if not quadrupled, how far we were out by. Wow. 
which you know goes back to one of the points that we were talking about at the very beginning of this, um, that there is um, a real um, acceleration of, of change that's happened in in the last six months, and, yeah. and, and that I think particularly goes towards health tech. And so, in terms of the technologies that you're then looking at, so obviously your forecasting is really tough, right? Because like trying to factor in pandemics and, and everything else that can go on is so difficult. But with the world moving ever more digital, and certainly healthcare, and I've had a few of these conversations recently. I mean, what technologies have you either invested in or, or that you're looking at, either on the life science side or or what you deem health tech? Yeah, so we we try and invest um, along themes. And so one of the big themes for, for us um, has been decentralization. Okay. Which I would sum up in, in its most basic format of why go to a central medical facility to have tests performed or treatment administered um, when you go there, you pick up a healthy dose of, of COVID or whatever mm. else or in MRSA terms of infectious, or, you know, yeah. or MRSA, exactly, you know, whatever other infectious disease that you want to be picking up, um, which, by the way, you'll be picking up at a point when you're probably immunocompromised in some way as well. Yeah. So <laughs> if you think about it, it's generally not, not a great idea. So <laughs> that's one of the things that themes that we have been um, investing in. And you know, we have some really fantastic companies within our portfolio that, that are really trying to deliver um, either uh, patient administered testing or, or at least testing that can be done uh, with, within the community. Um, so Isla Diagnostics is, is one of those companies. They have a point-of-care diagnostics device that um, they currently have running already um, on a couple of couple of tests um, and should be a training um, FDA approval for the overall platform and an expanding library of tests during the course of, of next year. Wow. And in COVID-19 and the, and the pandemic, obviously you guys being in touch with so much research and 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 biotech and companies that are already in the space. How's it been for you guys watching all this unfurl? Have you been able to deploy any capital to kind of help, I guess? Yeah. So, um, we, we're actually invested, um, in not one, but two vaccine companies. Wow. Which, um, if, if you wind the world back nine months, um, vaccines were a very, very hard space for VCs to be investing into. Uh, you know, they, because it's a generally infectious disease, you require extremely large patient trials to right. be able to, to, to tease out any signal from your vaccine, which as a result are very expensive to run, um, take yeah. a very long time to be able to run, which is why it's traditionally been a sector that's not really been um, in favor in the VC community. Mm. But over the last nine months, the amount of capital that has been pouring into vaccine development companies has, has been absolutely standing mm. compared to, to where that sector has been for the last five, 10, 10 years. So we have two companies um, in that space. One is called Vaxitech and another one is called Spy Biotech. Um, Vaxitech is, is the more well-known one of the two. And it was one of the um, co-inventors alongside the Jenner Institute uh, at Oxford University of what is now the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine candidate. Wow. And goodness. So how, how fast is that? I mean, that is, that is incredibly quick. Very, very quick. Very quick indeed. Um, and that's, that's actually been the amazing thing about this. You know, traditionally developing a vaccine is what? 10, 15 years, right? Yeah. Um, we, we have gone from receiving the genomic construct uh, of what was at that time known as um, Wuhan disease. Yeah. Back in, God, late, late January to, to now being in the middle of phase three trials. And I just think as well, from like a, from like a personal perspective now, Working for OSI and being involved, you've, you've come all the way full circle now back into healthcare. You've learned all this stuff about, <clears throat> excuse me, like financial services and investing and all that kind of stuff. 
you're now applying it to <laughs> to something which is just like genuinely so meaningful. I know that sounds like quite corny, but there's a pandemic. You're part of an organization that can deploy 50 million quid to people that want to help. And you get to be part of that decision-making process and all of that stuff. I mean, yeah, I, I imagine, you know, that, that person that told you that you were going to get bored in, uh, you know, in financial services and all, and all the rest of it was, was probably right because I suppose you were, you, you had this initial grounding in meaning as a, as a ground floor clinician. And it feels to me at least that, you know, when you talk about this sort of stuff, you can kind of hear it in your voice that it kind of gets you going again. Right. And I suppose it must be cool going to work every day, like knowing the, that you're, that you're helping to finance people that genuinely might be saving the human race. Is that a bit grandiose? I don't know, but it kind <laughs> yeah, of feels that way. That, that definitely sounds way too grandiose. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would liken it to, I remember, I remember turning up at university and doing my first set of exams at the end of my first year. And, um, I remember looking at the result sheet that had been pinned up onto the board. Mm. <laughs> my name wasn't at the top. It, <laughs> it wasn't even in, in, in the middle. I, mean, I was in, yeah. in the bottom third. I remember looking at that going, wow, there's some really clever people around here. Yeah. And, and this is exactly how I would um, describe my, my role at, at OSI yeah. um, and, and how my particular skill set is relevant. Um, there are so many intelligent people who have such a fantastic vision for what they're trying to achieve with, with their, with their research, um, with their companies, um, that I, I can't really add, um, anything to that, um, strategic vision, Mm. but I, I know enough to understand roughly at least what, what they're talking about. Mm. Um, and I know how to translate all of that into a language that makes sense and indeed resonates with um, financial investors, um, whether that is specialist biotech financial investors or, or broader investors. Um, so I can try and provide a bit of a bridge between those two worlds and then try and help these companies plan how they, how they actually bring their vision to life. Amazing. And final question, did you ever see yourself in this type of role when you were starting out? Absolutely not. Um, because, because I think OSI for now is, is pretty unique, at least within, within the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, Cambridge in, in many ways is streets ahead of Oxford in terms of that venture capital ecosystem. Right. Um, you know, there's a, there's a really strong and supportive, um, angel network and, and also indeed, um, corporate venture network within, within Cambridge and, and the surrounding areas yeah. of Cambridge. Um, but where, where OSI is unique is the fact that it's such a large and well-funded organization with a group of, highly strategic and, and highly supportive um, shareholders that we, we do have this ability to um, develop um, companies which then allows us to to spot the winners and once we've yeah. spotted the winners is to keep following them in and keep supporting them so that they they have an opportunity to become these globally relevant companies you know we don't want the companies to just be relevant within a, a UK context or a U- European context, it, it needs to be global. Yeah. That's awesome, man. It, honestly, it just sounds so cool. And, and I, I just really like the fact that throughout this story of, of your career, like you've just done you, like you've just, you've moved when you thought you should move and when you were comfortable moving and you've, you've followed the bits that, that you, you've just stayed true to yourself basically. And you've ended up somewhere that you really want to be. And I, I just really like that. And I think for, for the people listening, like I know I get loads of feedback about moving and careers and changing jobs and, you know, taking the leap and leaving medicine and all this sorts of stuff. I just think there are, 
there are ways of doing it. You did leap, you leapt from medicine out. I took one step out and with fellowships and gained my skill sets elsewhere and all the rest of it. But I think the the thing is there's so many transferable skills. There are so many things that people can do. Um, I think it is just the case of getting out there and, and finding out what you enjoy and leaning into it because yeah, it can lead to some cool places, not least being part of a 50 million per go fund that invests in nuclear fusion for God's sake. I mean, that is outrageous. Um, yeah, I love it. If, if that works, that, that will be an absolute cracker. How, how long, how long till we know if it works or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a kind of famous chart that they keep showing us, which is basically re- re- release of neutrons. Um, at every single one of their test firings of okay. their systems. And there's a, there's a horizontal dotted line that, that goes across that chart. Um, and that line signifies the UK Atomic Energy Agency definition of nuclear fusion. There's a certain release of neutrons that you need. And they're kind of slowly but steadily getting ever, ever closer to that particular <laughs> line. So... They, they hope to be achieving that towards the, the back end of this year, early next year. Um, but of course, that's, that's just nuclear fusion. And then the next step of beyond that is then developing a net positive reaction. So at the moment, um, every sh- test firing shot of their system, they're having to put more energy into it than they actually end up getting out of it. Sure, okay. So... Um, it, it's an important milestone, but then actually turning it into a net positive reaction, that's going to be an even harder task. Apparently. It just sounds so cool, man, honestly. But listen, man, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, the way that we end these podcasts is I just kind of hand back over to you to summarize a bit about yourself, a bit about what you're up to at OSI. And uh, if you've got any asks of our audience, then by all means, take it away, sir. All right. Thank you. Well, and um, absolute pleasure being here. Um, absolute pleasure um of course being able to to talk about my story but more importantly what we are trying to achieve at, at osi um, we would always welcome any inbound inquiries either people that would would like to to come and work with us and um, or even indeed people that just want to find out as to what what we are doing and how we could um, potentially uh, work together Awesome, man. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, um, either either through through you. Um, nice. Direct all the emails to me, mate. Nice one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You just talked about nuclear fusion, mate. So don't direct all of those to me. Like, <laughs> how about LinkedIn is that a best way? Is that a good one for you? LinkedIn, LinkedIn if you want to come directly to me, um, and then of cool. course the um, OSI website as well. Perfect. And I'll stick the links to those in the description of this episode. So Alex, thank you so much, mate. And uh, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Absolute pleasure. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media. So you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.